0: Mr. Speaker, not, Mr. Speaker, we'll the chair, we'll Mr. Speaker. Rose.
1: The bill is passed. We've
2: created a commitment to America. Those in favor say aye.
0: Here we are again, uh, three days away from a government shutdown. Welcome back to Control, a podcast where we explore the challenges and priorities facing Congress. I'm one of your hosts, Annalise Keller.
2: Uh, And I'm your other host, Brendan Buck. Uh, The laddered CR is back. Sunday night, lawmakers released a stopgap spending bill, another CR, even though we were told that wasn't going to happen. We'll get into that. So we have new deadlines, theoretically, if they can... Pull this off. The January 19th deadline becomes March 1st, and then we've got, we jump from February 2nd to March 8th for the second tranche. This past week has been an absolute mess, and we're going to talk about all of the dynamics going on in the House. Another rule vote goes down. I want to get a little bit into Speaker Mike Johnson's leadership style and how the heck. He's going to get out of the situation he's found himself in. And we are bringing in an expert to talk about these things. We're excited to have the budget and appropriation editor for Politico, Jen Schultes. She will be on later in the program. She knows the appropriations process and has been following all of these twists and turns very closely. So excited to have her on a little later.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to ask her about the Lattered CR. Uh, it's back I think we both thought that it was the first and last time we were going to see something like this. So really curious to hear her perspective on what that means for appropriators and for bill writers. But before we have her on, as Brendan mentioned, we have a new CR, a new short-term spending bill. And as Brendan alluded to, of course, Mike Johnson mentioned that he would under no circumstances accept another short-term CR, but it does seem like that's the only way to avert a partial government shutdown, potentially. So it seems like, I guess, a rosier picture today than when we recorded last week. The other thing- You definitely that...
2: thought we were going to have a shutdown last week, by
0: the way. Oh, 100%. We, we, still, we,
2: we may still. I don't know that we can necessarily assume they'll be able to pass this, but you were- I'm feeling just, better. Just for the, just for the record.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I'm feeling better. I think that's right. I mean, we're going to get into the dynamic with the Freedom Caucus and some of the challenges that Johnson is facing on the floor. But there appeared to be a lot of confusion around whether or not he was going to stick to the top line numbers that they agreed to, I guess, last Sunday. He ended up sticking to his guns there and saying, you know, no, we are going to we're going to stay with these top line numbers.
2: Did he say that, though? I think he said both. I and mean, That's the problem, right? He said, he said he's going to, yes, depends on what your audience is. We're going to stick to them. But some other folks sure didn't hear that.
0: He's clearly not uh, communicating effectively to, <laughs> or he's communicating differently to different members of his conference, maybe. But I, lo- I love this quote from an appropriator, Congressman Womack. I actually just want to read it. I love it. Renegotiating for the purposes of appeasing a group of people, 100% of whom you're not going to have, in my opinion, could be a flawed strategy.
2: Yeah, look. Sometimes there's benefit, I guess, to having different people hear different things when you have conversations. I actually think that is a bit of how Kevin McCarthy got elected speaker in the first place. People talking past each other a little bit, hearing what they want to hear. And that happens a lot. Like, you know, I'm hearing that he's committed to this concept. I'm hearing that, you know, he's going to fight for whatever we want. But hearing that, you are going to renegotiate a deal from one group, and talking to another who say, "No, no, he's committed to it." Like that doesn't seem like maybe people misheard. I don't, obviously it was not in the room, but I don't know how you get yourself into a position where two two different groups with two different priorities walk out, both hearing that you're going to do something completely different. Eventually, <laughs> people are going to figure out you're going one way or the other, and you're going to have some really upset people. So curious job of, of, of managing those folks. I think I think you're right. We right For now, we're sticking with this agreement. Let's be honest, that's the only thing that's going to end up happening if, if they do do appropriations. Um, but the fact that he not only felt the need to talk to the Freedom Caucus members and felt like he needed to sort of open the door to the idea of a different approach just tells you, A, that he's feeling a lot of heat, and B, that When he does feel heat, maybe he's not quite ready to stand up to it and and push back. So I think that was, you know, it may end up just being a small blip, but that was difficult, difficult to watch the maneuvering there kind of blow up in, in sort of real time.
0: I think we're going to get into Johnson's leadership style a little bit more, but it certainly wasn't really a great marker to lay down. There's just a lot of different reporting. I think it's you really want to be consistent in your message and and make sure that you know you're not battling the press at the same time you're you know trying to battle your your conference. Just a quick reminder: of course, we need the short-term CR to finish the rest of the appropriation bills, which you know we'll get into the likelihood of whether or not that is. Feasible and what the alternatives are. But the House has done seven of 12 and the Senate has done three of 12. And then Milcon VA is the um, one that both House and Senate have passed. But, Brendan, I want to get your take on this because I think that at least in the House, passing the rest of these appropriations bills is just going to be a huge lift. I mean, apart from the disparity between spending, I think the issues on the House floor, I have a really hard time seeing these sort of more contentious approach bills moving, moving forward.
2: So to some degree, they sort of have to, right? I mean, we'll, we can talk about what the alternative is and want to talk to Jen about this long-term CR idea. But I mean, the two options are you use the next, you know, call it a month and a half and move individual appropriations bills at the agreed upon level. And I think that would probably be certainly Johnson's preference to do individual bills. But I've this laddered CR thing, what it has just sort of led me to conclude or assume anyway is that they're just going to end up doing two minibuses megabuses, you know, one bill that wraps up all of the ones on the first deadline and the second one on the second deadline. But either way that you go about it, I mean, I think you alluded to the big hurdle here is you're gonna to have to write off a significant amount of your own conference. There's just no way about it. when, when you do the spending bills at the level, of the fiscal responsibility act which is the debt limit deal that mccarthy and, and biden agreed to and that's where this, this sort of johnson schumer agreement landed if you do the bills at that level whether they're individual bills or whether they're uh minibus megabus whatever you want to call it a bunch of rep- republicans are, are gonna vote no therefore you need a bunch of democrats but even more complicated can you even bring that bill up for a vote um, and
0: how and how do you do that
2: yeah i mean as we've talked a ton on this podcast. I mean, the rules committee is uh, central here. Uh, you only have now like a two seat margin. And if a Massey or a Chip Roy, who are some of the loudest voices on this decide they don't want to vote for this out of the rules committee or you get to the floor and, you know, rules on the floor are typically always a partisan affair. Do you lose more than two Republicans? Probably on the rule. I mean it used to be when I was in the speaker's office you you really never lost a rule. Now that they have lost what is it? 5 this congress, I mean that just is a just shows you how little respect some of these members have for leadership right now, which really leaves you with the alternative, do you not even bring the bills up through the regular process and just do them on a suspension calendar? Suspend the rules. You know, we talked about this last time. Usually you pass a bill with a rule that lays out debate, time for debate, you know, any amendments is designed to keep, you know, allow for real debate, but also keep some structure in in place and some guardrails. You can avoid all of that and just bring a bill basically up for a vote with a very short amount of debate, but you got to get two thirds of the house to vote for something to pass under that approach. That basically becomes the way the house has to operate because enough Republicans are basically going to reject any rule then you know you've you've made your life even harder you know it's hard to get 218 votes now you have to get 291 votes
0: well you just seed your agenda a bit to democrats in that case i mean it's sort of what functionally happens
2: every single thing you would want to do you have to assume you're going to get a big democratic vote and that's you know what what that means for the underlying policy and negotiations is one thing but as a matter of congressional politics and party pressure Johnson having to go to Jeffries on every big vote and saying, you know, I need this. I need you to carry this much. I, I don't know how Johnson thinks he has any leverage on anything going forward. And then, of course, you know, get in the conference meeting and, and all those Freedom Caucus guys and a bunch of others, frankly, lose their mind over it. You know, what kind of majority are we? And, you know, ignoring you know, what led to this point and ignoring you know, how narrow the majority is in the first place.
0: Well, and I think, too, the functionality of the House right now, um, you know, given that a suspension may be the only way to get some of these appropriations bills and, and anything done in the House, you know, sits directly at odds with Johnson's promises that he's going to be fighting for some of these conservative policies in the appropriations bill. So I don't really know how you square that circle.
2: Totally. And, that, and that's I'm sure what he's telling, and I think he said this, that okay, well, you may not like the levels of spending, but now we're going to go in and fight for policy riders. I mean, are you kidding me? Knowing that this bill is going to need a ton of Democratic votes, how does Johnson or appropriators, how do they go into a room and ask for a conservative policy rider with a straight face and think they're going to get anything out of it? This is the fundamental breakdown of the majority. When you don't have 218 votes backing your speaker, you have nothing. And effectively, they have nothing. Johnson had no leverage to get a deal below the Fiscal Responsibility Act spending levels. And he has no leverage now to get policy riders. And it's the same folks who took away his leverage by refusing to vote for anything reasonable that are now going to criticize him. It's the same story that we've seen for years and years and years now. And anybody who thought that you know Mike Johnson was the innocent one coming in can't be held liable for past sins, should quickly hopefully realize it's not past sins, it's just past realities. And the reality then remains the same. And so he can't pull a rabbit out of a hat any more than McCarthy could or Paul Ryan or John Boehner could. It's just divided government.
0: Well, I want to talk a little bit. I know we're going to talk more about this appropriations process and, and what's possible and what we might be looking at to fund the government. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about the uh, immigration Uh, negotiation process and the potential for a supplemental uh, before we bring Jen on. Uh, Over the weekend, um, Speaker Johnson was just sending signals and flares that HR2 is sort of the only, um, and of course, that's the Republican passed House immigration legislation uh, that passed without any Democratic support, uh, but was just sending signals that that's the only piece of legislation that they'll consider. Um, Now there's talk about waiting until President Trump uh, potentially comes into office. Uh, And I want to back up too uh, and just say that there is not text for what is being negotiated right now. And um, it's just kind of an interesting to see uh, the positioning and posturing of Speaker Johnson just going ahead and sort of tweeting out his no vote to this uh, legislation. I mean, again, to your point, like this is divided government, you know, this is certainly like, you know, we're not, we're not going to get, um, you know, Republicans have to be realistic with what they're going to be able to get. Uh, that feels doubtful. Um, and then also like Senator Langford. I mean, this is, yeah, this is, we don't have to go too too much into this, but I do think it's like a really sort of interesting thing to stick your neck out on. Uh, it's a really very thankless, uh, piece of legislation and an issue to negotiate on—it's you know almost destined to go to go wrong. And uh, you know, I do I do just think giving like Senator Langford a little bit of a shout out here. Obviously, this is is no easy task that he's sort of wading into here.
2: What an incredible middle finger from Johnson to Langford! Uh, so. Johnson tweets this out. Absolutely not. Basically, there's an there's a image of um, some of the alleged provisions of this agreement, which, again, we don't think we've seen. That was, I guess, on, on Fox News, and Johnson just tweets, absolutely not. Just like total F you to, to Lankford, who's been <laughs> into these negotiations for, what, now months, trying to do what is the hardest issue we deal with? Get some type of very fragile agreement to try to make something better and just totally throws him under the bus it's talking about leverage if you're Lankford now I don't know what you know what Lankford can can do or say at this point he might even throw in the towel I mean I guess he could try to use that to his advantage look look I you know look at these crazy guys in the house you're gonna have to give me more but I don't know how far that gets you in the room all of this just feels like Johnson protecting his own rear knowing how unpopular something is going to be knowing that Ukraine funding which this would theoretically be tied to is not very popular in the house so he's just trying to cut it off at the pass which you know for his own personal benefit his own conference politics that he's trying to manage I get but man if he didn't give a heads up to James Langford that he was about to throw him under the bus like that that's that's pretty rough I that's um, you usually would try to uh, take a little bit of the higher ground there well let's see what they produce um i was just sort of stuck yeah
0: before text is out i mean before they're actually looking i mean i think this was an outside group that was alleging provisions and you know langford's already said that you know don't believe everything you see um now sure we could see some of these these pieces in there but like why not keep your powder dry and just see what the agreement looks like before tanking it
2: as another matter of Johnson's tweeting, can we get that man another image for his Twitter avatar? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yes. It it looks like a fake congressman account. You know those fake accounts that like everybody like retweets because they think it's some like real random like Alabama congressman.
0: Hey. <laughs>
2: it just, sorry. It just it just looks like the Speaker of the House's account looks like a fake account. If you have not checked it out, look at it. it he has a
0: new looks- logo, so there's that, I guess.
2: Does he? Oh, yeah, oh his I eyeglasses. So. Yeah, that was I, just the anyway, important stuff. I don't know. Get like a more get him standing up there with the rostrum. Get him. I don't know. Get him out the border. I don't care. But the little like not me, regal enough. Me looking. in front of a, a flag that like any deputy secretary of energy for planning has a picture like that. Come on.
0: Yeah, well, okay, let's let's talk about how he's doing overall here. I mean, I think we, I think it's like not going to be a big secret, um, you know, that when you're like tweeting out things over the weekend on on you know major policy positions that you know we're we're probably not going to give glowing like commendations of that. But I don't know, Brendan, what. This is this is a tough job that I think anyone who would I don't know that anyone who would be put in this position would be like set up to do a good job. So in fairness to him, I will say like it, there was just no winning and in coming into this after McCarthy. I mean, I, like I said, you know, before, before I go into you know some of my thoughts, I, I think it's just it's a it's a really challenging position to be put in. But I think. Generally, it doesn't feel as if his conference has a lot of confidence in him. It doesn't seem like he really has backup or support from his leadership team. Uh, You know, there doesn't really feel like a lot of levers he can pull. And some of that, you know, is not entirely his fault. You know, he doesn't have the the political financial machine that you know some of our previous speakers have had to sort of help with rank and file uh, members and sort of being able to kind of maneuver and get get people in line. He hasn't had the time to uh, build these relationships. You know, n- again, none of that's um, you know specifically his fault, but I get the sense that he is you know not overall taken that seriously.
2: Yeah. I mean- all the caveats you throw at are, are totally, totally fair. Um, he's definitely learning sort of trial by fire. I mean, the, there's no question that there are things he is now pondering and trying to solve stuff that he never had to think about before. And he's probably still to this day learning all kinds of new things that he never had to contemplate. Any leader, any congressional leader is going to in theory grow into their job over time. And he just doesn't have time to, to grow into it. What, concerns me early on is just the wishy-washiness about the way he's going about things and if i thought it was strategic i that would be one thing but he just seems to be indecisive thus far and that could change and maybe he'll you know he'll figure out his his voice and i don't i like to remind people it was not nothing that he got that laddered cr passed in the first place and basically got the senate to change their plans and go along with it not that that's you know a, a real achievement but he was able to sort of push that through but especially around this this funding agreement what he why he has not been able to kind of figure out what the plan is and leaving so many people well, you know one hearing different things but two just unclear what the plan is you, you i've seen enough background quotes or things attributed to sources about how the rest of the leadership doesn't know what the plan is and that to me is the biggest problem, one, because he's not articulating a plan, but also he is flying solo. It feels like on a lot of this stuff, like what, where, where's the whip operation? Where's the leader that are you know out there fanning out to drive his strategy? Feels a little bit like they don't want anything to do with what he's up to. And that's a really unhealthy place to be right now. I expected the rest of the leadership to really help carry him along. I even wrote a op-ed uh, along these lines, um, and the fact that they don't feel comfortable leaning into wherever he wants to go tells me they're not really confident in him. Um, again, very early, we'll see where this goes, but he's learning tough lessons, like never say what you're never going to do. He said he was never going to pass another short-term CR. Well, until you're certain that that's not necessary, um, you know. Now he has to has to walk that back, and hopefully, he's learning that you can't let different people hear you say different things in, in, in such a meaningful way. Um, so I'm, I'm still very hopeful that he'll figure this out. It's just, you know, you got to figure it out quick. And this is somebody who's not been around very long and is just confronting things for the, for the first time. And I've talked about how like, you know, Johnson, whoever the next speaker was going was going to inherit some of the same problems that McCarthy had. Uh, the reality is he's inheriting that plus a bunch of other ones. And one of the, yeah, basically, uh, even though this was supposed to be the sort of, I wouldn't say handpicked, but you know, was the okay successor for the Freedom Caucus, he basically has found himself with a bunch of Freedom Caucus members who now see him as, as the enemy, but one in particular uh, for me that I'm, I'm keeping a really close eye on, and that's Jim Jordan. I don't think that people appreciate enough. How much Jim Jordan helped Kevin McCarthy get through, get the speaker's gavel in the first place, get through his time as minority leader, get through the you know the first nine months or so that he was there. That alliance between McCarthy and Jordan unlocked so many things for um, for McCarthy, and now you have a situation where Jim Jordan is a free agent again, has no allegiances. To Mike Johnson and in fact is feeling I think quite burned and now you've got Jordan out there um, I think undermining him a bit and trying to fight for this push for this year-long CR which is much easier said than done so he's got not only the, all of the same problems that um, McCarthy had but he's now got a big Jim Jordan problem if you know if I'm him that's one of the big things I'm worried about
0: well speaking of a long-term potential year-long CR we're really excited to welcome Jen Schultes to control today Um, She's a budget and appropriations brief editor for Politico, and she's been covering Congress for more than a decade. Uh, Jen, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: So I want to get into what's going on right now. But Jen, I know you've been covering the sort of appropriations action for a little while now. Can you explain to me what the heck was going on for the last two months when they were not negotiating a top or before they came to an agreement on a top line deal? I'm just... I'm so frustrated by the fact that they didn't like reach this agreement until right before the deadline, when we all knew where this was going for for weeks and weeks and weeks. It was the obvious outcome. What was what was happening? Nothing.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think the new speaker really had to go through a full kind of exercise on trying to accomplish the fiscal 2024 bills, which he he wasn't able to pass the full slate. You know, before they could really before he could start trying to negotiate with uh, Schumer just because of, to save face. So I think that was part of the issue. Another part I think was just the Speaker needing to get up and running and just so much uh, trauma that had happened over the weeks um, after McCarthy was thrown out and when he came in. Um, And then, like you said, Right up to the deadline, that's when then when the agreement was the framework agreement, the top line top lines agreement was struck. That's typical. I mean, you, you've mm-hmm. seen it so many times, and that was what some of the appropriators were telling us. Uh, mostly, Senate appropriators were were in early December and late November saying, "No, no, no, don't you know we that they that they really didn't want to what when they when they punted." beyond December that they didn't want to do that uh, because usually the pre-Christmas deadline will get people going. So if they had had that pressure a little bit earlier and maybe the the framework or the top line had been negotiated in December versus January, then then maybe we would be here right now and everything would be done. But because Congress procrastinates and, and you never get a deal really until you have that pressure... Um, I think that extra punt put us here, and that's that's how a lot of people were feeling about March. When March started floating around, I think um, minor- Senate Minority Whip uh, John Thune had floated it last week, early last week, said, you know, because of the calendar, March was the only viable option, and that he had seen this many times. He thought March was the likely outcome. Um, I heard from people off the Hill. We certainly heard people— from people on the Hill, on the record, lawmakers, some lawmakers just saying, no way, I don't want to do March, that's too far. Let's get this done. So, um, you know, you always, you punt and then things, something usually comes together right before the deadline and then everybody kind of slacks off again.
2: Yeah, let me, well, before I let Annalise jump in here, but so, but so given that I think we all knew where this was headed, was there work being done? I mean, how much, work can be done to write these bills in the absence of that top line are they basically starting from scratch or is a lot of that work done i guess what i'm what i'm really getting at is like is march sort of cushy enough like is that a reasonable amount of time for them to be able to process appropriations assuming johnson sticks to the to the agreement
1: yeah i think it really in a lot of ways depends on the bill and we talked to tons of subcommittee leaders last week about where they were. And th- the ones who really didn't want to punt again, were are talking about how, you know, it's not like we haven't done anything. We've pre-negotiated a lot of this. Um, we've been talking to the Senate senators were saying we've, we were talking, we were talking to our house counterparts throughout the holidays, trying to resolve anything that we could resolve. And so we're ready to go. Let's, let's tie this up. But a bill like uh, Transportation HUD, which is typically been very bipartisan and those four leaders have all worked together historically very well, is different from a bill like Homeland that uh, has been so divisive that the government has shut down basically just because of Homeland, you know, before some – or one time for for 35 days. Um, yeah, I was there so for that. Sorry. I, yeah, we've heard so many different. Um, we've heard, you know we've heard, we've kind of heard a little bit of different themes from the subcommittee leaders. Some people saying we're ready to go, we're ready to close this out, give us our subcommittee allocation, and others uh, like I was talking to Senator Graham last week. He was saying, "Well, you know, I I work, or actually, with Senator Coombs was saying I work really well with Senator Graham. We can." Pr- we can close out um SFOP, state and foreign operations, but they were saying like we're miles away from what the House wrote, so it's gonna be difficult. So it's you know, you kinda hear a different thing from each person, and then it just depends on if the subcommittee leaders are are unable to resolve some of the stickiest policy issues, that all that stuff always gets kicked back to leadership. And then if it depends how much the speaker wants to try to go for some of those wins, and obviously depends on how much Democrats want to um, give. And I think hearing the speaker talk over and over about wanting to secure some of the conservative policy wins, I I expect that to be a big fight. Going, you know, going into what once we get through kind of the the funding part and the subcommittees work out what they're going to work out. When you have those remaining stickiest issues, I think that part is going to be really hard fought just because of the commitments that, that the speaker has made to deliver on that.
0: Yeah, we were talking a little bit about that earlier in the program. Uh, before we kind of jump into sort of some of the alternatives or the backup plans, if this sort of doesn't work out, if some of the stickiest issues sort of keep some of these bills and some of the the measures from moving forward and, and particular in the House, I want to get your take on the laddered CR because it's not really something that, you know, Brendan and I during our time uh, in Congress have have sort of ever seen done. Um, I'm just curious if, you know, we feel like it's kind of maybe setting up like a mini and a mega bus, um, but does it really change things or did the laddered CR really change things for when appropriators were writing the bills? And do you sort of see it laying out that mini mega bus uh, scenario or do you kind of see that differently?
1: Yeah, I think that I think that, that is the most likely packaging. And that's what we've heard from lawmakers consistent consistently is two mini buses or like you're explaining, it, one mini bus and one mega bus. Um, and maybe some of those bills get packaged differently in the end, you know, um, I don't know, like we have the, the four bills in the first tranche that will expire on March 1st. And if there's some issue with one of them, you know, I don't, I don't know, this is a completely just, uh, you know, theoretical situation, but it wouldn't be out of the question to, to punt on punt one to the other date while you were funding the others or something like that. So obviously there's nothing is undoable you can just write a law to change a law (laughs) and if you're gonna pass something anyway i could see something like that happen but yeah i think we've spent so much time um this year hearing the no omnibus argument that especially senate Republicans have said you know like that's just something that we we are not willing to do but then to to an omnibus split into two is okay. (laughs) And I think that's just the reality, (laughs) right? That's just the reality of, um, the last time that even the last time that we split, we had a minibus and we split off the bills, um, and waited again under Trump. Um, that's when we had the shutdown. When you, when you kind of cleave these things, that's when things get risky. So I think it's it is risky to separate them. The mix that they've chosen is a little bit less risky, obviously um but i don't I honestly don't really understand the calculus with the March one and March eight deadlines because um, because it doesn't it doesn't really make sense if you're just trying to get through like pay periods and things like that because both of those things you know I, I think March eighth is pretty close to when you know, like service members would get, who get paid twice a month would get paid to get on the 15th and things like that. I don't know. It seems like it doesn't buy you that much to put these two things a week away, except for to say you didn't do an omnibus.
2: Yeah. And it's like, I mean, if we're talking about like a a megabus, I I don't know how much you're avoiding the omnibus criticism if 85% of the spending is in that second package, it's still going to look and feel a lot like an omnibus. So, um, which, you know, gets back to I don't know how many sort of conservatives are going to be voting for any of this in the first place, but you alluded to Johnson wanting to fight for some of those policy provisions. We were talking about that earlier. Um, what's your sense of the, how realistic that is, given that it's pretty apparent Johnson is going to need a lot of Democrats? To carry whatever this looks like, one, you know, do they have expectations that they're going to be able to get much meaningful, and and two, do you, do you have any sense of what those priorities may be at this point?
1: So we've tried to suss out what what they what they really want, you know, like what would seem like a win. Um, that you could say like that this was really good that we cracked this back open and didn't do a full year CR because we were able to get the, these things. And, um, Tom Cole told us, uh, um, with all due respect, I'm not negotiating with you. And he wouldn't, you know, give us a, a ton of details, but, um, certainly they think the Homeland security bill is something that, um, is ripe for some kind of negotiation, especially now that the border security talks are sounding, um, sounding like the House Republicans are not going to accept anything in that realm. So maybe this is a space on the Homeland Security bill to get some kind of immigration language that appeases some House Republicans. Um, The other space is just the things that language things and then some of the um, diversity inclusion programs, the climate programs, things like that the Democrats built up in their years uh, in control. Republicans want to roll that back, and um, Tom Cole called it weeding the garden. Uh, So I think those things are areas where they can kind of put their mark on on this, and because the levels are so close to – under the top lines are so close to what current law is, the difference between a full-year CR that erases any sequester trigger – And writing new bills is kind of those nuances. So I think that's what the speaker is trying to distinguish between is that um, instead of just going to a full year CR and doing heavy anomalies, you know, making up for programs that don't exist anymore, um, you know, priorities that aren't priorities, things like that, um, that we this, this is why going through the headache and the heartache of fully negotiating full year bills is worth it because we can erase some of the things that, you know, Democrats put in and then maybe get a couple of other things. But again, to your point, because Democrats are expected to have to carry that vote um, in the House, that undermines the Speaker's negotiating position. And I think the more that um House Republicans can show some unity around that and and maybe it's from you know the the droves of uh House Republicans who aren't going to the speaker's office complaining that they want him to go back on his deal the it, the more that they can show that they can deliver the votes the more leverage the speaker will have in those negotiations
2: Yeah it seems like um Maybe the best argument for him is less like, look at these incredible conservative writers we got, but more just, you know, this is now not Nancy Pelosi's government, right? That we, We've sort of reset all of the policy.
1: Yeah, totally. And I think that the, there's a lot of nuance around what does a full year CR mean? Because everybody, I think, has woken up to the reality of um, just a few weeks ago, people weren't even clear on does a full year CR trigger the cuts. I, people weren't clear that there's two different cuts and caps scenarios. Um, if you do a short-term CR, it's a different outcome than a long-term CR. I think all of this has really come into focus. Uh, the the information from CBO on what the cuts would actually look like, um, guidance from OMB on on how they haven't they didn't actually, you know, put forth any sequestration guidance on January 1 things like that. Um I think it's become clear that when we're talking about a full year CR, you have to be really careful of what you're talking about. Are you talking about a full year CR with sequestration cuts or are you talking about a full year CR where you turn off the triggers that were baked into the debt limit deal? And as you totally know, um there's there's no path to whipping a full year CR that doesn't turn off the trigger in the house and the speaker knows that and the speaker tells that to his conference you know all the time reiterates this this kind of whipping math that 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 you know there's no path and i think what has changed between um now and when mccarthy was I don't know if he was telling people behind closed doors, you know, reiterating the whipping math, but the reality that he knew is that the House has gone through many exercises where they couldn't, uh, House Republicans couldn't pass their own bills. And then, uh, you know, some of the moderates publicly stated, like, I will not, I will not support these policies, or I will not support these funding levels in, in bills like Ag, FDA, and things like that. So I think it's been demonstrated, and that reality is a little bit clearer, and then also like, the second the second guy telling you that he can't whip it maybe <laughs> Just changes the reality a little bit too. Yeah. So just as like a brief explainer and to
0: back up quickly. um, So, of course, if if these appropriations bills, the minibus, megabus can't get done, um, there are some, including Jim Jordan. I think Speaker Johnson has indicated that, you know, he may have a personal preference for this. um, But, you know, if if this is if they're not able to go through the appropriations process, Um, this year-long CR would trigger an automatic across-the-board 1% cut um, that was written into the Fiscal Responsibility Act debt limit bill. Um, So I know Senate appropriators, uh, national defense community, uh, defense hawks in the House, there's been a lot of aggressive pushback to this, um, you know, potential path forward. Um, And, you know, I think, uh, unfortunately, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how likely it is, but it's certainly on the table. I
1: guess I'll, I'll leave it there. And Jen, would you yeah.
2: mind walking through a little, like what that would mean practically?
1: Yeah. Um, let me pull up the, the CBO. Love that. Numbers here. Um, so I think the the big thing to know is that we passed January 1st and it in the debt limit um, law, that sets up two two kind of different trigger scenarios. And because we are beyond January 1st there, unless Congress acts to negate the caps, to erase what was written into the debt limit bill, there are three bad scenarios, and those are the only scenarios, if Congress doesn't act, to turn off the triggers. The first scenario is... um cuts to defense and non-defense. The second scenario is deep cuts to non-defense. And the third scenario is the government shuts down, which is probably the most likely if you get to the date when these things would happen, which is um, you know midnight on April 30th or uh, 1201 on May 1st. So because we're beyond January 1st and because we're headed toward April 30th unless. Congress does something to negate these things, three bad things will happen. <laughs> and so let me, the this, this, long and short of it is that CBO said that if you do a short-term funding patch, um, that defense would be cut by about 1% and non-defense would be cut by about 5%. And if you do a full-year CR, a full-year stopgap, or the regular funding bills, and you don't turn off this trigger, there would be 9% cuts to non-defense programs, and there would be no cuts to defense below current level, but it would be a cut below the agreed-to top lines. So Republicans would be leaving tens of billions of dollars on the table from what they've agreed to with what the Speaker just agreed to with Schumer as the top lines. So... Um, both scenarios are really bad. The White House has said that they are open to a full-year CR that turns off the the cuts and the caps, um, and I think that's a possibility. I just don't see how you can whip, because it would take an act of Congress to trigger the the to trigger this. You would have to you would have to knowingly pass one either a long-term bill or a short-term bill. And not a racist. I just don't, don't see them taking that vote, triggering those cuts. I think it's more likely that we would enter into a shutdown around April thirtieth. If we, I can't live through that. Please <laughs> don't let that happen. Um, I can't let this go to the end of April. It's it would be hard to endure. Um, as a reporter, <laughs> but um, if we get to the end of April and we're still living in fiscal twenty twenty four, um trying to fund the government for fiscal 2024, um, it would take an act of Congress to, to set up these cuts. And I think it's more likely that we would have a government shutdown, and then the two sides would litigate it after that than to actively trigger such deep cuts.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I've been musing that, like CR is always just sort of like, the backup default, even a year-long CR, we, we did uh, once for for much of the government while I was around. Um, but uh, turning off the 1% cut would be a very difficult vote in the House for Johnson. And uh, it's, it's almost basically the same coalition that would go ahead and just appropriate the full year that would need to vote to do a CR without that cut. So it's like, well, might as well just write the bills. Um, but it feels like, you know, what you were getting at with the with the shutdown, like maybe the only way that that happens is if we are kind of deep in a shutdown and you just need some exit ramp and everybody just kind of throws up their hands and says, well, let's just do a CR and we'll turn off the cuts and we'll go back to fighting this next year. And Republicans will say, well, when Donald Trump's back, we'll, you know, we'll get what we want to do. Um, so you that, that feels like how you, 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 I think maybe something you're getting like, you need to have some pain before you're you're willing to to go down that road?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that unless the speaker changes course drastically, which is totally possible, um, the way that he's been negotiating in good faith and the, what he has been saying publicly and privately about wanting to demonstrate that House Republicans can govern to really educate themselves about. The, the math of the whipping equation with the vacancies and everything and the slim majority already. um, That would be, it would be surpri- surprising if the leaders walked themselves into a shutdown, because I think that, again, what the speaker is projecting is that he does not want to talk about that. He wants to talk about the border. He wants to talk about things that um he thinks are going to help Republicans win in November. And, talking about shutdowns and uh, funding cuts is at least not what he's saying he wants to be focusing on. So I think it would take I think it would take a, a big shift for him to for that to happen. But again, like totally nothing nothing ever um, surprises us after this fall was I think so many people on both sides of the aisle were really surprised by what happened. Um, what happened to Speaker McCarthy and, um, you know, then the weeks that followed that, I think the sentiment that anything is possible is a lot more on, you know, it's a is on people's mind a lot more than it was, um, before, before that, that was kind of an unbelievable occurrence. And, and now, um, people feel like anything could happen.
2: Yeah. I I couldn't help but start smirking when you said that the strategy was built around trying to prove that House Republicans can govern. Um, Still still waiting for that. Um, Jen, this is awesome. Um, This is exactly what we needed to get sort of deep into all of this. So we we thank you very much uh, for joining us. Um, I know you're going to continue watching all of this uh, very closely uh, as we all are. Um, so thank you for joining us. We are going to uh, wrap it up here. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Control. Um, we will see if the um, these folks can avoid a shutdown. Uh, assuming they do, we will probably uh, be out next week as the House is not scheduled to be in session, and then we will return when the House does. So thank you very much to Jen, and thank you all for listening.
0: Control is a production of Seven Letter a leading strategic communications firm in Washington, D.C. and Boston, with deep experience in bipartisan public affairs, public relations, crisis management, digital strategy, and corporate engagement.
2: Special thanks to our producer, Benji Englander. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please join us next week for another episode, and don't forget to rate and review us. Thank you for listening.